Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today we're looking back, talking to director Mike Gunadegeo Mitchell about his 1969 short doc, You Are on Indian Land. The people of Akwazasne, which the white man calls the St. Regis Reservation, have lived on this land long before the two countries decided to draw a line between themselves. That line was not meant for Indians, and our right to cross it with our belongings, paying no duty, was confirmed in the Jay Treaty of 1794. The Canadian government never got around to making this treaty into law, and now they say we must pay duty on our groceries as we carry them to our houses if we happen to cross their line. Many of us have to pay a dollar to cross the bridge they built on our land, and they even built a custom house there too, without our consent. 1968, the usual heavy traffic between the two countries ground to a stop. We decided to block the bridge This film is the creation of the Indian Film Crew, the first all-Indigenous unit at the National Film Board of Canada. It documents a protest by the Mohawk of Aquasasani, a territory that straddles the Canada-U.S. border. This film evokes familiar images like we've seen recently from Standing Rock or Wet'suwet'en, as similar conflicts have continued taking place in the 50 years since You Are in Indian Land was released. Mitchell, who eventually left film for politics, served numerous terms as the Grand Chief of Aquasasani in a political career that spanned 30 years and counting. His film helped mobilize a new peaceful indigenous resistance movement. It was even screened at the occupation of Alcatraz Prison, which was an 18-month-long protest by indigenous activists in the early 1970s. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Mike Mitchell. Thanks so much for uh, joining me today, uh, Mike. Welcome. So big picture, this is a film about treaty rights and indigenous sovereignty. But on a local scale, what were you protesting? Yeah, well, you have to kind of picture uh, Akwesasne, the way it's situated. Uh, One half of the community is located in the United States. The other half is in Canada. And if that's not complicated enough, uh, the half that's in Canada, one half is in Quebec and the other half is in Ontario. So it's multi-jurisdiction. And uh, everywhere you you go in a community, you're crisscrossing provincial, state, and uh, international borders. Uh, So if you go to work anywhere, you're liable to cross back and forth, United States, Canada. So a lot of our people were working in in the United States. And uh, the same on the other side, iron workers were working uh, throughout Canada. So we were very used to maintaining our status as North American indigenous people. And that's uh, what they were trying to change uh, back in 69 was to say, well, we're not, we're not going to honor the Jay Treaty any longer. We're, uh, you know, we're going to just treat everybody as Canadian citizens. And that had a, a profound effect on us. And that led us to uh, take a stand, and which led to... Uh, the international uh, bridge blockade. So how did you go from that to also making a documentary about it? I was a film student at the National Film Board. 
And uh, I missed a couple of days in my training, and they wanted to know where exactly I was and what was I doing. And I told them, I'm sitting in the meetings back home. I told them what was going on. And then they uh, said, why don't you take a camera and recording equipment? If you come up with anything, uh, we'll take a look at it. We might even send a film crew. Because there was a series of meetings, uh, events that led to it, probably over two months that led to the day that we had to close the bridge. So uh, there were meetings with Ottawa uh, back and forth trying to negotiate a solution. And so that's what I was recording. And then they said, well, put a storyboard together, submit it, and uh, we'll see if uh, we can record the the event and see if we have a film of some sort. The more they saw, the more interested they got because there was an exchange between Ottawa officials and community members. And when we saw that uh, it escalated into being pushed into a corner and we had to take a stand, we had already covered a few other meetings. So the National Film Board said, we're, we're going to send a crew down. And so that's what happened. On December 18th, 1968, we uh, closed the bridge for the whole day. Uh, over 50 people were arrested. And uh, it caused an international um, situation that got Americans involved because the American government recognized the Jay Treaty. And they wanted to know what was going on. And so it, it made a, it was big news back then. Well, you're not only the director, but you're also a prominent figure in the film, which starts with you addressing a crowd. We don't want to be a Canadian citizen. We don't want to be American citizens. They told us a long time ago that we were North American Indians. And today we feel this way too. We have feel this way because we think that this reservation is ours. And it does not belong to the white man. It's the only part we still have left. It just happened naturally, I think, out of a desire to help remedy the situation. The mandate we got from our community members, particularly the elders, was that they wanted to see a nonviolent demonstration. So they picked a day when all the men, the iron workers, were in the major cities working uh, when this took place. So there was only women elders and uh, and children around that day. The children were in school, but as soon as they heard about it, they all left and uh, came back to, to the island, Akusasim. It went on pretty much for the day before uh, they began to realize that all the jails were full in Cornwall and the surrounding communities, and they didn't know what else to do. And uh, so there was kind of a mutual agreement that we'll stop because we were concerned how we're we going to get all our people out of jail. And so uh, that led into another event of uh, meetings with, uh, with federal government officials. So that's how uh, I, I think when they see it, they thought back in its day that it, it was violent, but it wasn't really. Some of it was actually comical. That a lot of the elders were there who told us to be nonviolent, but the, some of the elder, elderly women that would climb up on top of a toll truck uh, grappling with the RCMP officers and at the same time telling us not to be violent and if they get arrested, just go peacefully. So I try to listen to their instructions, but uh, I later learned when I got out of uh, jail that some of the elders were pretty frisky. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned you were a film student and uh, I guess you were part of what was called the Indian Film Crew? Yeah, they started a, a youth program, 
and uh, initiated through the Company of Young Canadians, an agreement between them and the National Film Board. And uh, they got National Film Board to uh, put on a course designed for Indigenous uh, students to learn the craft of filmmaking. And uh, it was a four-year program. Over 300 Indigenous students applied for it, and seven were picked from across the country. I was fortunate to, uh, to be one of them. What kind of interested you in film? I, I don't know. It's, uh, sometimes you get mad if you're Indigenous, uh, the way your people are portrayed uh, in TV and uh, in movies. And I thought documentary uh, film would go a long way to perhaps straighten the record, particularly from uh, history to uh, modern day situations. So that got my interest. And, uh, I mean, we, we should talk about this barricade because, I mean, we see uh, these kinds of barricades pop up now and again, uh, most notably with Wet'suwet'en, of course. But uh, was this the first of its kind? Was this the first time that uh, this had ever happened? Or is this kind of an old form of protest or resistance, I should say? I believe it was the first of its kind because it was reported that uh, they'd never heard of uh, Indigenous uh, people taking a stand like that, uh, widely covered from the state side as well. They got wide coverage. But just the mere fact of, uh, of an indigenous community asserting its rights, defending it, uh, it was, uh, yeah, one of the first. And by the way, <clears throat> this bridge blockade led to a series of uh, other events. Um, the man from who was credited with organizing the um, Alcatraz takeover, uh, which was uh, less than a year after, was Richard Oakes. And Richard Oakes was from Wakwisasta. And um, so he led the movement to for the takeover in Alcatraz, and that went to Wounded Knee. So it just seems to have a, an awakening of Native spirit and, and action, followed by action and... Uh, but you're right, it's, uh, it all started here in Akwesasne. I was in Alcatraz about three years ago, and I remember seeing the, the signs uh, that said, uh, Welcome Indians, and, and, and there's still obviously, uh, the presence is still there, I guess. Um, can you talk, talk just a little bit about that and how this film kind of connects to those events in Alcatraz? Richard Oakes decided to go back to school, and he wound up as a mature student at San Francisco State University. And... Uh, then he started a campaign to change the curriculum, uh, to, to have more meaningful uh, education for Indi Native Americans. Uh, there was about 80 students, uh, Native American students, and uh, so he kind of got them going that they should take action. As a matter of fact, we were there months before as a group called the White Roots of Peace, and it was a cultural uh, speaking group. Uh, Matt Bear Anderson, Tom Porter, who's pretty famous right now as a speaker and organizer, but there was a peace group. And uh, Richard Oak started booking them in various universities and various groups. So while we're there, we came upon some of the meetings that he was organizing about a possible takeover um, of Alcatraz. The, the reason I was traveling with the White Roots of Peace, aside from being a speaker and a dancer, was the very fact that I was part of a film uh, course in, in Canada. And what I had with me was uh, real-to-real footage of the blockade here 
that took place um, months before. So we showed this and uh, as we traveled university to university. And so it became a, a more better known uh, issue. And uh, when they landed in Alcatraz, and one of the first events they organized was a screening of uh, the um, bridge blockade. And uh, it was a motivator, but it also advocated the whole peace movement as well. Yeah, and the presence and the and the presence is is still there. I, I remember when I was in Alcatraz, like I said, I could see the the signs everywhere. Um, I definitely wanted to learn more about it. So thank you for providing that context. Let's go back to the barricade. Um, so. Who who actually do you remember who actually thought of the idea like who said let's let's build a barricade was it one person or was it kind of a, a consensus like how did that kind of uh, action sort of come about? I was part of a delegation that went back and forth to Ottawa. I, I have to stress that this was the last involvement of the so-called Indian Agent days, uh, representing the Department of Indian Affairs and, and Canada. And so they were still very influential uh, with the band council and, um, and the way things were uh, the Crown and, and, and the First Nations uh, relations. So we bypassed that process because they were always uh, going to send you around. You're, you're going to a never-ending circle, not going anywhere on, on issues. So uh, because of uh, families uh, losing stuff at the border, whether it's clothes or groceries, have them taken away. They they wanted action. They want to see something happen. So I was part of a small delegation that was going back and forth to Ottawa meeting with officials, and um, they got pretty frustrated in 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 in, in the fact that we're just getting the run around. And so they, the elders and the families in the community said, "We need to assert ourselves. You know, we need to take direct action because they're not listening." And that's what led to uh, the bridge blockade um, when the committee decided uh, because, you know, the customs, uh, Canadian customs, the immigration building, it's right in the middle of the community on the island. And uh, we did warn them that we're possibly going to do something like that. And uh, so it resulted in a few more meetings, but uh, the bureaucracy was great. The, uh, you know, the rhetoric that went on, uh, was very frustrating. So that's where it was headed. And ultimately, they challenged us to uh, to take some kind of uh, action. Uh, they weren't really believing we would do anything. And, and so it had to be done. Did you anticipate that you might be arrested? Yeah, in our community meetings, they told us that we would be. But they also said if we remained peaceful, and if we were going to be arrested, not to fight back. And they did plan it really, you know, in retrospect, they decided to do the closing on a day when most of the men were away from the community. If the men were here, it would have led to uh, a lot of physical uh, interaction. Um, violence probably would be guaranteed. So I think back, they, they planned it in a good way. Uh, there's a great line that you have uh, when you're getting uh, put into the police cruiser. Do you remember what it was? See you in Disneyland. See you guys in Disneyland. <laughs> Why did you say that? It's spontaneous. Uh, something had occurred days before, kind of like a, a community joke. So it was more or less restating it back back to them because we knew we're all probably going going to be going to jail, and uh, we tried to laugh laugh about it, knowing 
what was going to be happening to us. Would you say that you got the change that you were looking for? Uh, yeah. Um, in the following years, I led to more meetings and I resulted in the suspension of the collection of uh, duties and, uh, and taxes. Uh, we were able to negotiate a remission order that exempted us from duties and, and taxes on community goods. And the reason I said a year and a half to negotiate it is that we had to give a modern interpretation of a treaty right. And so we had to make a list of what we identified as, uh, as, as community goods and uh, that came in from the United States. And uh, so we had officials from Ottawa, Customs, Indian Affairs, all sitting across the table, and, uh, which resulted in, uh, in an action and, uh, and, and, and a result that still continues on today. And, and, and I, I need to tell you that the Canadian uh, Customs and Immigration, they called, they're now called CBSA, but they swear by that now because it's a good way to identify who's coming across, who's bringing what, where they're going, etc. If they're residents, and uh, so even of its complications now, it's uh, it was a saving grace in that it restored normalcy for us. It meant a lot to to fight for your rights and to achieve some kind of uh, satisfaction at the end. Uh, coincidentally, in 1986, I was Grand Chief at the time. Uh, they wanted to, to continue the fight, and uh, we brought a truckload of groceries, uh, furniture, etc., and and declared everything. And uh, we were fighting for the recognition of the uh, border crossing, uh, indigenous border crossing. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was it was supposed to be a test case, and uh, I was invited by Canada, and uh, actually we won uh, at the federal court. And they said any court. We could negotiate a modern uh, interpretation once you win uh, in a Canadian court, which I did. And so that became the uh, catalyst uh, of fighting for something that we believe in. And it continues on. It affected a generation. And uh, But now that we have peaceful relations, uh, we still look for the day that we can uh, take the J-Treaty and Indigenous border crossing as a, restore it as an Indigenous right and and have it put in a, in a modern-day terms and uh, an application. In terms of treaty rights and Indigenous sovereignty in Canada, have things changed much since 1969? I would say so. You have very significant victories, especially in British Columbia, the territories. Uh, you have land claim settlements now that, you know, uh, it's becoming uh, common that it, it, it gets associated and, and, and put alongside uh, with uh, indigenous rights, land rights, etc. cetera. Uh, still not enough to, uh, you know, when we say sovereignty, uh, it, it has to be of significance. And um, so Canada is still grappling with uh, how it's going to interpret. We're familiar with it because half of our territory is in the United States. And the United States doesn't really have significant problems with recognizing uh, sovereignty and, and, and how it's interpreted. Uh, not that it's wonderful over there. They still have problems as well. Uh, they go through the same thing of uh, not having their rights recognized from time to time. Uh, and in Canada, it's building. Uh, it's a building thing. And so it requires a lot of good faith across the table. It requires good faith on behalf of the government. Uh, and sometimes, uh, depending on what party gets in, 
they're willing to negotiate seriously, and at other times, they don't have time to do that. They have other interests. So yeah, since 1960s till now, uh, it's, it's been an interesting story, I can put it that way, of the evolution of uh, indigenous uh, rights being recognized in various forms and sometimes not being recognized, and the battle will, will continue. But you, you asked the question, I see a process uh, of evolution, and you have to be active all the time. So I see the, the whole thing continuing. It's a continuous battle, and it requires a lot of patience and goodwill, too. Well, speaking of recognition, it wasn't until 2017 that you were credited as a director of the documentary. What's the story there? Well, they didn't want to give me credit for the movie, and uh, actually, it was a man that brought a, a film crew on a, on the last day when uh, we did blockade it. Uh, they gave it to him as a, as director of the of the movie, and he advocated from day one that it was Mike Mitchell's uh, movie, and uh, he did all the work, the organizing, put the storyline together, and why wouldn't you want to give him credit? And I guess uh, due to NFB. Uh, policy of some kind they they didn't want to do it and at the end they said well he's just a he was just a student anyway a film student and uh, uh, the impact of it was what I was uh, satisfied with uh, not really interested at the time of who gets credit for what but some 50 years later somebody at the National Film Board said let's do the right thing and there was a formal recognition that I I directed the, the film, and I should be given uh, credit for it. So that's the end of a, a long, long story. How'd you feel? I'll tell you, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, it's it's kind of kind of like something was restored. You know? I don't know if it was faith or, or good relations, because I enjoyed my time at the National Film Board. I made a lot of friends there, and I got to learn a craft and, uh, and hope to return to it some, some time. But uh, yeah, it did. It did kind of restore to my faith in uh, you know and in, in, in relations. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty good. And you went into politics eventually, as opposed to filmmaking. How come? There's always seems to be every ten years. There's a major crisis in Akwesasne, and so this one started on the American side. Uh, they had the FBI, the state troopers were occupying the southern portion or the United States portion of Akwesasne. And uh, so they blocked everything off and there's a small point called Racket Point. And so what we were doing, because it's directly across from the North American Indian Traveling College that I had founded and, and, and it's a rebirth of, of, uh, of, of an older movement, uh, education institution. And so I was a director and when I saw what was going on, we got some boats and we started bringing food across, doctors and nurses across to uh, provide services to the people that were under occupation. And uh, it led to one thing or another that um, they wanted younger people to get involved in politics. And even in a community, they, there was always a split, uh, factional feuds going on. Those that believed in one thing and another. And so they, uh, the elders said, you should consider running for uh, political office, uh, the modern elected uh, politics. And I really had no experience in it. I thought about it, and when I finally saw that they really wanted this to happen, I said, okay, I'll, 
I'll give it a try. And I got in, and it was pretty uh, pretty violent at times. My office is occupied. Uh, I got beat up on my way to work because you have to go through the States and back into Quebec to get to your office. And so it just happened that they wanted a change, and um, we seem to be always rushing to court to complain about something or rushing to Indian Affairs. And I initiated a referendum that uh, as far as elections goes, it should be decided by the community. We opted out of the Indian Act and, uh, and created our own uh, election code. And that led to other things like having our own uh, police department, uh, standalone police, uh, our own justice program. And so by the time that one term was over, they said, we need you to stick around for another term. And Why did it get violent? Um... Politics was done a certain way in, in indigenous communities. Uh, with smaller communities, it was usually family against families. In the larger communities, it was a, it was a power struggle. You, um, you build a, a whole network of, of support and you run the community a certain way. So when I was talking about making changes and bringing changes to the community, that was kind of like my mandate to, to have that continue on, bring about changes. Um, Anyhow, we, uh, I wound up maybe some 30 years later. I'm getting old now, and I've been involved in this position for a long time. Usually as district chief, going back to grand chief, but most of the time as grand chief. So I retired in 2015 and uh, you know, left it up to younger people to continue on. But Akwesasa is known as a fairly progressive uh, modern community, but at the same time, Still very traditional, strong on, on culture and, uh, and tradition. So uh, in terms of uh, be, always be ready to, when you have to fight for something that uh, community, I attribute more to the community uh, that give direction uh, how we're to survive because when you're living in a multi-jurisdiction, a lot of things happen. And, and back then uh, in the 70s, it was fuel. Going into the United States uh, in the 80s and 90s, it was cigarettes. Uh, in the 90s, then it was uh, illegal uh, type casinos that sprung up. Uh, so a lot of things, you know, um, happen happening that might have had a negative effect or it warranted to have action taken to keep the community stable. And so it was uh, at times confrontational. And um, I guess I, uh, I lived through that and... Uh, Live to uh, to retire in 2015 <laughs> in one piece. Well, now that you're retired, do you have any plans to go back into filmmaking? I ha- that was on my mind, but I got talked into working for the Assembly of First Nations organization, our national organization, and currently I uh, serve as resident elder for for the organization, and um, I'm quite comfortable doing that for now. But at the same time, we're we're discussing. Uh, some film ideas, so yeah, it's probably going to be something that later on I'll I'll take up the challenge of uh, filmmaking again. So, Mike, uh, we have to round out our conversation, but do you have any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners? Yes, Canada is a evolving, changing uh, country, and it prides itself in holding the mantle of a peace, peaceful, nonviolent nation, respectful of uh, of uh, of rights of all kinds. We're, we're in there, and we're fighting to gain that respect. And uh, always, uh, 
always be ready to take that challenge of, you know, finding your place within the nation and to assert our beliefs, uh, have our culture and language ceremonies survive and have it respected. So it's not just politics, it's finding a peaceful place to spread your blanket. And so that challenge will continue and aspiring to create that, that time or place of our own. Well said. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And that's the podcast. You Are an Indian Land is available on the National Film Board of Canada's website at nfb.ca. If you like what you heard, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show. You can write to us about it at ondocs at tvo.org. And you can follow me on Twitter at ColinLS81. Remember to check out past episodes of OnDocs at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. This episode of OnDocs was produced by Chris Beaver. Thanks, Chris. Our production support coordinators are Jonathan Hallowell and Nikki Ashworth. Our series producer is Katie O'Connor, and our executive producer for digital is Kathy Vay. We'll catch you at the next screening.